Uh, good morning, and uh, I want to say a special welcome to any guests with us this morning. Uh, hopefully you feel welcome and loved, because you are. Uh, and if uh, you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, or uh, one of the chairs near you, because we're going to look at chapter 13 of the Gospel according to Mark, as we continue our sermon series, The Cross-Shaped Life in the Gospel of Mark. And it's on page 1080, if you're going to use one of our Bibles. So we're going to look at verses 14 through 37 this morning. <clears throat> Hear now God's holy and true word from Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 14. Jesus was speaking and he said, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is... On the housetop, not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven, in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as its branch comes under becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So alas, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that we can be together and we can look in your word together and we know that your word is powerful. We know that your word does not return to you void. We know that your word is authoritative. We know that your word is the way that you Tell us about yourself and about your son. 
and about the Holy Spirit, we know that we can trust what we're hearing. And when we can't understand things, we know that we can trust you and that one day you will help us understand all things. Father, would you uh, bless our time now that this time that we spend in your word would be formative in each of our lives, that we would see the glory and majesty of our Lord Jesus and that we would be empowered to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Some of you might remember Harold Camping. Uh, Harold Camping, he's up on the uh, left there. And uh, he uh, predicted at one point in his life that Jesus was going to return. He had done the math and he had figured it out that Jesus was going to return in 1994. Well, he was wrong, so he tried again. And this that you're looking on the screen is some pictures of when he announced that Jesus was returning and Judgment Day would happen on May 21st, 2011. Does anybody remember seeing some of those billboards? There were a couple around here. And so he spent a lot of money and got other people involved to try to tell the world that he had done the calculations and that on May 21st, 2011, Jesus was going to return and the world as we know it would come to an end. May 21st came and Jesus did not. Um, And Harold is not the first to make some sort of guess. Uh, Actually, all through history, there have been some some of the early church leaders guessed that Jesus would return in 500 A.D. One of the earliest uh, men men who considered himself a pope, uh, Pope Sylvester II, he said that Jesus was going to come back in the year 1033, exactly 1,000 years after uh, he died and rose again. There were predictions from within the church uh, all through the centuries, in the 1100s, 1200s, 1300s, not so much in the 1400s. Kind of took a break for a while there. Picked back up in the 1500s. There were uh, predictions that he'd come in the 1600s, in the 1700s. John Wesley, you might know that name, he said that Jesus would be back by 1836. Uh, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they're uh, not a Christian denomination. That's a, a, a false religion that that's bases some of their thoughts on the Bible. But they predicted that uh, Jesus would return in 1914. And then they changed it and said 1918, and then they went to 1925, and then to 1940, or I'm sorry, 75, and then to 94, and then they kind of gave up for a while. Um, and recently I've heard they might be saying that maybe 2033 is the year. Um, there's a man named Mark Blitz right now who says that Jesus is coming back in September of this year. So there you go. Listen to me. One of the things that we see in this passage is that the idea that anyone could figure out when Jesus is going to return is complete foolishness. It really is, okay? And uh, the, the, the bottom line is that's not our role. Our, our task is not to predict, but to proclaim to the nations the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to own and believe and even celebrate this morning as we look at this passage. Our job, it is not our job to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back. It is our job to stay laser focused on making sure the nations have heard the good news of the gospel and that Jesus is going to come back one day. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning and I want to talk about it in three ways. First, I want to talk about uncertainty. 
if you're going to make an outline. First, we'll talk about uncertainty. There's some things in this passage that are can be kind of confusing, and there's some debate about what it says, and so we'll talk about that. Uh, then we'll talk about certainty. There are some things that we are 100% on. And then third, I want to focus on an essential element of discipleship that we see in this passage uh, that sometimes is missing in the lives of American evangelicals, an essential element of discipleship. So that's our roadmap. If you are uh, taking notes or making some notes on your sermon note guide there in your bulletin. So uh, let's jump in and let's talk about the areas of uncertainty we're going to be kind of doing a 30,000 foot view here. So if you want to keep your Bible open, I highly recommend that because we're going to look back at it a number of times. But basically, there are some things in this passage that there are that are widely debated. OK, for example, uh, when did or when will these things happen? There is some debate on whether or not all of these things have actually already been fulfilled. What we see in chapter 13, both what we looked at. Uh, last week and what we're talking about this week as well. There are some that would argue that all these things have already been fulfilled. And they have some pretty interesting arguments for that. And then there's others who would say that maybe some of the things have been fulfilled and some are still in the future. And there are some that say that basically it's mostly all in the future. So there's some debate on that. Um, Who is the abomination of desolation? That's the question. Who is or who was? There are some that would argue, those obviously that argue these things have already taken place, they would say that the abomination of desolation, whoever that was, was somebody in history. And so there have been some suggestions. Perhaps he he was the man Caligula, if you know that name, or Titus. Uh, There are some different historical figures that some people say it may have been. And then there are others that would say that this abomination of desolation hasn't come yet. But Jesus mentions that in, in 14. Um, and then in verse 19, you see that Jesus talks about the tribulation. And so there's a question when was, or when will be this tribulation, which Jesus makes sound really horrific. I mean, like nothing the world has, has ever seen. Uh, the word literally means pressure an incredible amount of pressure. So there are some questions about, has that happened or is that going to happen in the future? And therefore, Here's what the reality is. If you were to read five commentaries on this, you'd probably find three to five different interpretations. So there is a lot of question about exactly how these things are going to take place and what Jesus was referring to. So what that means is we really want to be charitable to one another. We really want to be respectful of one another as we look at these uh, things. And because there is these questions, we want to be Loving as we discuss these things, if your view differs from someone else's view about the end times or about specifically about this passage, it should not divide us. Jesus didn't tell us these things so that we would fight about it. He told us these things either so that we would understand history if these things have happened or so that we would be not caught off guard if they are going to happen one day in the future. So just let's be careful not to be really dogmatic about what we see here. Now, I do want to tell you the interpretation that I favor, and I think it's fair to say that I'm right. That's a joke, okay, just to be sure. But I do want to show you one of the interpretations that I think is interesting. 
Okay? And ultimately, everybody agrees that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, and then obviously he's also talking about his return. Well, pretty much everybody agrees that these are the topics uh, that Jesus is talking about. And one of the things that's interesting is the language that Jesus uses. He talks about things and days. Things and days. In, uh, in 4 through 13, which is what we looked at uh, last week in part, he talks about these things. Uh, if you look at 14 through 27, you're going to see a couple times, verse 17, verse 19, verse 24, he refers to those days. If you look at 28 through 31, uh, a couple times in that section, he goes back to using the phrase, these things. And then if you look at 32 through 37, in verse 32, he says that day concerning that day. And so some would argue, basically, he's talking about some things that have happened, things leading up to the destruction of the temple, including the destruction of the temple, which did happen in 70 AD. We know that. And then maybe he's talking about some things in the future as well. If you remember last week, we looked at the first 13 verses of this chapter, And in verse 2, Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed. And in verse 4, some of the disciples asked, when will these things be? And then Jesus goes into this explanation of all these different forms of adversity that the church was going to face, which last week we talked about are things that I believe are recurring as well. But at least they were going to experience these things. And Jesus was telling them so that they knew what to expect and that the end wasn't there when those things were happening and he also i think was talking about the destruction of the temple so i think that's what he's referring to there and then like i said in 14 through 27 he starts using those days and here's what i want to do i want to want to explain to you this this difference between uh these things in those days and how this is really helpful if jesus is talking about these things uh, if these things refer to things leading up to the temple it makes a lot of sense out of verse 30 Look at verse 30. And uh, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And therefore, if he's meaning all the things in chapter 13, uh, that is hard to quite understand because some of the things he's talking about, particularly his return, have not happened yet. And so people who do believe everything has been fulfilled look at that word generations differently but i think it's likely that jesus was saying to them here's the things that's going to happen up until and including the destruction of the temple that's why when the descent when the temple was destroyed in 70 a.d that had happened within that generation does that make sense so then the next question we'd want to look at is if he is talking about the abomination of desolation in 14 through 27 uh, well he does talk about that who is this And one possibility is that this person has not yet come on the scene. Uh, And the answer would be that he is the same person that the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So that might be who this is. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 10, Paul is talking about this man of lawlessness. And you can look it up later, but one of the things he says is concerning the coming of our Lord. So he's talking about the return of Christ. And he says, this will not come, this is verse 3, this will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And there are some scholars who think that the man of lawlessness that Paul's talking about is the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about. But here's what's interesting. This man of lawlessness, whoever he is, 
uh, about him, Paul says, this is the man whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth at, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's in verse 8 of Second Thessalonians 2. And so if the abomination of desolation is the same person as this man of lawlessness, it appears that he is alive and wreaking havoc on the church and the world when Jesus does return. So even if the abomination of desolation, whoever that is, is a past historical figure, we've still got the man of lawlessness that will show up one day. And some of the thinking on that is that that will trigger the tribulation, that it is, it is the abomination of desolation, whoever this person is, that would trigger the tribulation. So in answer to the question, when was or when will be the tribulation, that that may be someday in the future. And ultimately, uh, if it was in the past, then it was. And if it's yet to come, when it comes, I feel like we'll probably know. I think Jesus will ensure that we understand what we are up against, what we are uh, into at that point. And keep in mind that if things go completely haywire, God is with us and he will get us through these things. Think about this. It even says that God cut short the length of the tribulation because otherwise nobody would be saved. But for our sake, for those who believe, it was cut short. So we know that God knows what he's doing and whatever we may go through uh, between now and Our death or the return of Christ, we can trust him. So that may be what's happening here, that that the things that happened up until the destruction of the temple, those are in the past. And then this tribulation, this abomination of desolation that triggers the tribulation and Jesus' return, those things all might be ahead of us. So here is something that's very important. Like we said before, there's debate on these things. And I just want to make sure that we are respectful to one another and charitable to one another as we are discussing these things. Because Jesus did not tell us these things so that we could fight about it. He told us these things so we wouldn't be caught off guard. So there are some areas of uncertainty. Now, there are some areas of certainty as well. Okay, There are some things that we are certain about. So I want to talk about those. Number one, Jesus will return. Like that's something that we need to be thinking about on a regular basis. Jesus is going to come back. It gives meaning and worth to everything that we're doing, all of our suffering, all of our labors for the gospel. Everything matters. Jesus is coming back. Sometimes we live like this world is messed up and it's never going to get any better. But the bottom line is Jesus is coming back. It does say that Jesus will return in verse 26. So that's something that should be on our hearts and even impacting our lives on a daily basis. We live in a time where we know that Jesus will return to make all things new. Another thing would be that nobody knows when. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And this is that little portion there of this passage is why it doesn't make any sense that people would invest a lot of time trying to figure this out. But people do. They really do. There are certain traditions and denominations where this is a big deal and they're always trying to figure out exactly what's happening and when so they can pinpoint when Jesus might return. And Jesus is saying, you do not know when the time will come. It even says, which is sometimes a little disturbing or confusing, if you notice in verse 32, he says that he doesn't know. Only the Father knows 
when the time will come, when Jesus will return. Now, I don't, nobody really has a great explanation for why Jesus doesn't know that, other than he must choose not to know that for the sake of the gospel. And so, uh, instead of letting that bother us, we should trust. We should simply trust, uh, but, re, but knowing that if anybody says they've figured out uh, when it's going to come, we should automatically dismiss that. We do not want to um, believe somebody if they say they know when Jesus is coming back. Okay, um, next. Nobody's going to miss it. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 is very interesting. He says, and if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. So this is a command to not believe it if somebody says that Christ has returned. If your friend calls you up and said, hey, did you hear Jesus is in Dallas? We're getting on the bus. Don't get on that bus. Jesus is not in Dallas. Okay. Nobody is going to miss it. Think about this, what it says in 26 and uh, 24 through 26. Here's what it says. It says in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss it. I do want to make one mention on that. Um, one thing on that it, that's important. Um, one of the debated things from this text and just in eschatology, that's the study of the end times in general, is the question, will there be a rapture? Will Jesus come down and take a bunch of people out of the world and then that's when the tribulation happens and stuff like that? Um, I want to say I, I don't believe there's going to be a rapture. I don't think there's three comings. There's two. There's the first coming where Jesus died on the cross and there's the second coming where he comes to judge the living and the dead. And so uh, the, the Left Behind series and some of that stuff, uh, if you believe in the rapture, I'm more than happy to sit down with you and just help you understand why I don't think there's a rapture. But rather, when Jesus comes back, uh, if you look again, look at what it says in verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth uh, to the ends of heaven. And this sounds a lot like what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he's talking about us being caught up in the air with the Lord. And that's where some of the ideas about the rapture comes from. But ultimately, when you understand the context, and when you understand that normally when a king was returning from having been on a journey, as soon as the people in the kingdom saw him on the horizon, they would all run out to meet him and then accompany him back into his kingdom. So if you take that imagery then it makes more sense what Jesus is saying here, what Paul says in Thessalonians, that when Jesus comes and nobody misses it, we can all see it, that's it. That's him coming back. And we're going to be drawn up with him into the clouds and come down with him as he comes to fully establish the kingdom of God on earth in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, man. So, nobody's going to miss it. And there really is no indication that we're supposed to get out our calculators and try to figure out when he's coming back. That's a key thing. Rather, our job is to uh, proclaim that he is coming back and proclaim the good news to the nation. So why does he tell us these things? I think he tells us these things so that whether the church, when it happened, so that they could be prepared and not be thrown off guard, or so that if these things are, some of these things are yet to come, that you and I are not thrown off guard, but we know 
He said these things would happen. It's part of the process of God's kingdom coming to earth. I've been to the Orlando Science Center a number of times with my family. And there's a, it's not a ride, what is it? It's a thing, you know, one of those things. And it's uh, it's a hurricane simulator. And it's this big glass tube. And you, you shut this door and then you the fans kick up and pretty soon you're standing in like a hundred and some odd an hour, mile an hour winds. So if you know what's happening, it's pretty fun. But every once in a while, some parent who doesn't understand what they were waiting in line for with their kid hops in there. And that wind starts kicking up and it gets really loud. And never mind the kids screaming, the parents are sometimes, how do you turn it off? And they're freaking out. It's great. I love it. And uh, But the bottom line is, if somebody had told them, look, this is going to be really scary. Like this wind's going to be loud and you're going to feel it and your lips are going to flap and it's going to be... If they had known, then it wouldn't have been quite so traumatic, would it? Jesus loves us so much. So he tells his church these things so that as they come, we already know. Look at what he says in verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. He's saying to us, remember all this stuff. So when it happens, you don't get thrown off guard. So, um, I want to talk next about this essential element of discipleship. Looking at 32 through 37, here's what I want to focus on. One of the most essential elements of discipleship is contributing to the completion of the Great Commission. Okay? Now, growing up, I did not know this. In the denomination that I grew up in, we just didn't talk about this. And that's why I have such a heart and passion now that I have uh, seen these things in Scripture and learned these things. It's just critical that we, as a church, we all understand this, that one of the most essential elements of discipleship is contributing to the completion of the Great Commission. Our moral obedience to Christ is absolutely important, but so is our missional obedience to Christ. If we are going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus, this is what we're training for. Right to take the gospel to the nations. We have this incredible good news. And the nations need to hear this, the good news, and they need to know that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, he comes as judge. And the bottom line is, we're all sinners, and none of us can stand. None of us can be saved by what we've done, or what we've thought, or what we've given. We cannot be saved by what we do. And so if we stand before the judge, before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul says, with just our record, we are going to be condemned to hell forever that's the bad news but the good news is what we're supposed to be uh, busy telling people and participating in the advance of the gospel is the good news that god is gracious and merciful and he has chosen to pour out that wrath upon his son on the cross instead of each one of us who believes in him that we instead could be declared righteous instead of wicked that we could be forgiven instead of condemned that we could receive freedom from the power of sin instead of being enslaved and that we could have the promise that one day we will be in this new heavens and new earth when jesus returns it will be a very very good day when he comes back for us and a very very sad day for those who do not have 
faith, those who have not trusted him, not repented of their sin, not chosen to follow him with their life. This is what we're supposed to be focusing on, not predicting when, but telling people that he is coming back. That's why we see in the Great Commission, this is what this is about, that that in Matthew 28, as we've got printed on the back wall, so when we leave here, we're reminded we are to be busy making disciples of all nations. The end of Luke's gospel, uh, he says, talking about forgiveness being proclaimed to all nations. The end of Mark uh, talks about proclaiming the gospel to all creation. And then in Revelation 7, we have this unbelievable picture of the fact that the Great Commission gets completed and there are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue uh, worshiping the Lord. So ultimately, Jesus wants us to be hard at work advancing the gospel to the nations when he returns. This is what it means to stay awake. Stay awake. Stay on target. Look at 32 through 37, particularly 34. Here's what Jesus explains it this way. He says, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. And he says, you don't know when he's going to return. What a clear, I think, picture of the Great Commission. Jesus is the one going on the journey. He ascends back into heaven. We saw that uh, at the close of his earthly life and ministry. And then now he has sent us, the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel to the nations. And therefore, what Jesus expects, here's how you know if you're ready for the Lord to return. It's not that you've become a perfect person. It's that you are on mission telling that the only perfect person died so that unperfect people, imperfect people like you and me could be saved. When he comes back, he wants to see us busy bringing the gospel to the nations, sharing the gospel with the nations, sending missionaries, being missionaries, going to the nations. And think about this. This is what we are have awaiting us, right? I want to read this to you. Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I love this. We, we talk about it a lot. This is what happens after he returns, right? Listen to this description. Uh, John says, Then I saw the new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Every time we look at the world and we can't believe things are the way they are, we remember, we need to remember. That's temporary. And what I just read is going to be forever. And Jesus wants us with that in mind. He wants us to be out sharing the gospel with our neighbors and to the nations. Every Christian should be asking themselves, every church should be asking themselves, how can I, how can we make the greatest contribution to the completion of the Great Commission? That should be our question to the Lord regularly. How can we make the greatest contribution to the completion of the Great Commission as an individual, as a family, as a church? As we ask that of God and he reveals those things to us, we take part in the greatest advance of the greatest news ever. Now, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be a missionary. Some go, some stay, right? I love what John Piper says. He says there's three responses to the Great Commission. Go, stay, or disobey. Or go send or disobey, sorry. So go yourself or send people through prayer and financially or disobey. And this has to really, this has to be an essential part of our discipleship. So 
knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us for these things, and knowing that I'm running long, I'm going to try to move through some uh, application stuff, okay? But I want you to think about these things. Here's some things we can do to increase our awareness as well as to make sure we're all contributing to the completion of the Great Commission. Number one, we can pray for unreached people groups. You already do this every time you come to church on Sunday. But you can go to Unreached of the Day and you can sign up uh, to get a daily email and pray for unreached people groups every day. You can go to Wycliffe's website and you can find out about the Bibleless prayer people's project the people without the bible in their language and you can pray that it would be translated missions is it needs uh, the, the word of god and the language of the people to really take root if you don't like to use the internet i will give you a copy of operation world it's a list that gets updated every few years it's a big big wonderful juicy book filled with information about groups you can be praying for i'm going to post this information on um facebook or something soon so um, if you don't want to write frantically, because we've got to keep moving. Next, uh, another thing I, I want you to do, if you haven't done this, one of the books that I, I think is very orienting, very helpful in helping your heart be inclined to the nations uh, like uh, God's heart is inclined to the nations is John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. If you've read it, read it again this year. Make it a goal in 2015. If you have not read Let the Nations Be Glad, you should read it. Let me tell you why. Better yet, let John Piper tell you why. Let the nations be glad. The supremacy of God in missions is the fruit of about a decade of missions awakening in my own life. Along about 1983, uh, God did a deep work in me and in some of the staff at Bethlehem. And, and for the next decade and now decades, we, we realized that if you love the glory of God, You've got to love his glory among the nations. You, you can't say, I live for the glory of God, I love the glory of God, I treasure the glory of God, and then be indifferent to the fact that there are maybe 6,000 people groups that don't esteem or exalt the glory of God. They don't know Christ. They have no access to the gospel. So missions is different from local evangelism because local evangelism assumes that our people can, in their own language, talk to people about Jesus. There are no Christians. There is no evangelizing church among many peoples of the world, and that's where missions comes in. So this is an effort to make plain the, the biblical mandate for missions, and it does so by focusing on the, the ultimate goal I think the most famous sentence in this book is uh, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. So there's a chapter on worship, a chapter on suffering, a chapter on prayer. It's really fundamental things. It's, it's not a kind of practical how-to book on doing missions. I'm not an expert on missiology or anthropology or on-the-ground evangelism among among unreached peoples, but I see it in the Bible and I want to provide a, a solid foundation where people can stand and have their hearts exploded with the greatness of God for the sake of the greatness of His cause among the nations. So I hope this book will be used by God in your heart and, and your church to stir people up to care about the nations because they care about the glory of God. Okay, so dream, dream come true, if, if it would be if everybody would read that book. Um, Jack and 
company. Why don't you come up while I finish these application points? Uh, the next thing that uh, you can do is hang a world map uh, somewhere in a prominent place in your home. Those are three of my four children. Yes, my son is pointing to Swaziland with a lightsaber. Leave me alone. But here's the thing. Uh, it, it, put a map, put it in a frame, make it important. The world is important to you because the world is important to Christ. And we are, our mission is to the world, not just East Orlando. And so uh, you can hang a map and you can pray. When you pray for unreached people groups, take your kids if you have them and point to these places. Help your families understand the scope of the mission. Uh, here's a few more things. You can increase your giving to our church so that we could increase our missions giving. We uh, could do a way more giving to missions if we can raise our uh, giving. I have a dream also of being a 50-50 church that one day we would 50% of the offering that comes in would go to the foreign mission field and 50 would stay to do ministry here so hopefully we can some of us can increase our giving for the sake of the nations go on a short-term missions trip if you've been a follower of jesus for a while and you've never been somewhere where people are proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel to another people please and we'll try to provide some opportunities for that in the coming uh year and years uh consider becoming a missionary how amazing was it last week to see rj and his heart and know that he is going to the field um Fantastic. Um, join and or pray for uh, the missions committee. You can show that whole list now, John. Um, this is uh, a key thing for this year. If you're on the missions committee, would you raise your hand? Okay. And would everybody else just say thank you to these, this team of people? Um, they got they have a big job ahead of them because we've been talking about identifying an unreached people group somewhere in the world and trying to start the work and stay with it till it's completed that our church would be responsible for removing an unreached people group from the unreached people group list. How do you like that? Wouldn't that be sweet? Lord willing. So uh, here's what I want you to do. Just take one moment here while Jack plays some music and uh, just think about this. What could you commit to? What is at least one thing on this list that you could start doing or start doing again I mean, there's got to be something, right? If you want to read that book and you can't afford it, you let me know. I'll buy you a copy. And Sunday just told me that Perspectives is happening. That's also, you can go to perspectives.org. That class is going to start next week. It's a great, great opportunity for people to learn about uh, world missions movement. So perspectives.org, that's another thing. Why don't you stand up? I hope you can grab onto one of these things, particularly if it's sort of new to you that the Great Commission is like what we do. Okay? It changes your life. It changes your understanding of Christ and Christianity. It's unbelievable the more, how, how amazing this is. So I hope you can commit to one of those things. And I hope you can sing your heart out as we sing and we think about the day when Christ does return. And when we arrive at eternity's shore where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. The bride will come together and we'll sing. So let's sing.